Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 1.8, Relations with the Powhatan Confederacy. During our episode last week, we discussed the fact that upon landing on the Chesapeake, the English settlers had come into one of the most densely inhabited areas along the eastern coast. This week, I want to turn our attention to who these people are and what effect are they going to have on the early years of the North American English colonies. I would like to focus primarily on three questions as we move through this week. The first question is to answer who the Powhatan people were, what their lifestyle was like, and what they were hoping to achieve in their interactions with the English. Powhatan was an opportunist, and while he certainly had reservations regarding the European settlers, he was also interested in how he could turn his situation into his advantage. The second question this week is, what were the expectations of the English? Whereas Powhatan was seeking a way to turn the English people into his advantage, the English come with a much different outlook. Even before they left England, there was an expectation that the local Indian people were going to be required to help them survive, especially during those first early years. This is a lesson that they had learned from their Roanoke colony. The advantage that the English sought to extract, therefore, is survival, both from starvation as well as from the danger posed by more hostile tribes. The final thing that we are going to look at is the ultimate relationship that emerges between the Powhatan people and the English. What emerges is going to be a decades-long rivalry and warfare that is going to lead to significant losses for both sides. Ultimately, even without this podcast, I'm sure everybody listening knows how the story is going to end. In 1607, the Powhatan Confederacy may have numbered as many as 26,000 members. By 1669, there are just 2,000 people left in the remnants of what had once been this great confederacy. During that same period, the English see their numbers increase from the 104 original settlers to nearly 41,000 people. Despite their initial struggles, the English are not just going to survive, they are going to thrive. The Powhatan people are never going to recover. To begin this episode, we are going to start by looking at the Powhatan people specifically. The Powhatan Confederacy was a group of approximately 32 tribes who came together under the rule of a paramount chief named, and I am so completely sorry for probably butchering this, Wahoo Seneca, whom the English are going to call Powhatan, and from this point forward, I will as well. Powhatan ruled his empire from a village along the York River. Specific numbers on how many members of the Powhatan tribes vary. However, the numbers I have found all generally fall between 14,000 and 26,000, with 24,000 being the most common population size that I come across. The Powhatan people shared a common Algonquian language. The tribes tended to live in small villages of typically about 300 people each, and these villages are going to be scattered throughout the entire Virginia area and generally consist of 20 to 30 buildings. The villages were almost always temporary as tribes maintained a largely nomadic lifestyle. After several years of farming the same plot, the nutrients in the soil would become exhausted, at which point the tribe would up and move to a new location. For the Powhatan tribes, life consisted of the following. During the spring, men would spend their time hunting and fishing. By the time summer had rolled around, efforts would switch to farming, with the main crops being beans and maize. With the fall rolling around, they would then again turn back towards hunting with deer being the primary protein source. The women of the tribe would spend the fall searching out other edible items, such as roots, nuts, and berries. During the winter, the primary objective of the tribes was simply to survive. 
During the winter into the early spring, the tribes would subsist off the previous year's harvest. Unlike in European society, the idea of social status exempting one from work is not something that was present amongst the Sabawitan people. Regardless of who you were or what your position in the tribe was, you worked. The division of labor instead fell strictly along gender lines. The downside of this for the local tribes is that they did experience periods of food shortages. In unexpectedly long winter, for instance, that pushed back the beginning of the spring hunting and harvest season could be particularly devastating as food supplies were already going to be running low. Due to their nomadic lifestyle, it would have been abnormal for them to have much in the way of excess that they could rely on should a year not produce the desired yield. It is this that is going to make the groups particularly susceptible to famine. Trade among the tribes was limited though not unusual. A secondary consequence of living a nomadic lifestyle is that the accumulation of property would make little sense. Having to move around often, personal property and goods would serve as nothing more than a hindrance. It's going to slow them down. Therefore, unlike in European societies where trade was largely based on luxury goods, this is not the case amongst the tribes. Instead, what's far more common is low-scale trading of small portable items instead of larger luxury goods. In further contrast with European society where complex social structures existed, the division of labor amongst the Native American people was far more simple. Men hunted, fished, and cleared the lands for the crops. The women cultivated those crops, gathered nuts and berries, and looked after the home and the village. The division of labor strictly along gender lines means that unlike in Europe, there was little in the way of specialization or craftsmanship. It would be incorrect to attempt to view the Powhatan Confederacy in the same way that we view a nation today. For Powhatan, his goal was to find a meaningful way to unite the villages under his control. The most common way to accomplish this task was either to replace a defeated chief of another tribe with a blood relative of his own, or, if that wasn't an option, they would adopt the defeated chief and make him part of the family. In that way, the bloodlines between the tribes always is going to remain close. Powhatan would often marry the wives of the defeated chiefs, and these polygamous practices allow Powhatan to have more children which could, in turn, be sent out to rule the villages which he conquered. Powhatan depended on these children to maintain his dynasty. In the tribes, the power flowed through the female line, not the male line. Therefore, when a chief was defeated, and Powhatan would take that chief's wife as his own, he was giving himself a chance to create the next generation of leaders. Powhatan lacked the necessary power to exercise direct control over all of the tribes. Rather, what he was able to do was to ensure that his offspring were in position to control the different tribes in the Confederacy in the future. This setup means that as the children come to age, there is a certain amount of loyalty to Powhatan that they're going to have to exhibit. Put another way, Powhatan would insert himself into the bloodlines of all these various tribes. This way, if a chief was vanquished, the tribe was not losing the king's lineage, as it still existed through the mother. The child and the future chief would then grow up with the loyalty to his mother and the individual tribe, as well as to his father, Powhatan. To further cement this, after a number of years living with their mother, the future chief would then spend time living with Powhatan and his family directly. This again is going to breed that loyalty that is going to be so critical in maintaining his confederacy. This is something that does not really appear to be clear to the English during those early interactions with the Powhatan people. In fact, the evidence suggests that the English were utterly baffled by Powhatan's marriage practice. 
Paladin did not have the complex bureaucratic systems in place that one would expect from a European country. However, while these complex governmental systems that we tend to associate with European governments of the era would not have existed, it would be incorrect to assume that this was a simple or primitive society. Remember that Paladin was in control of some 32 tribes, many of whom had a history of warfare with each other. Despite the lack of a centralized bureaucracy, being a member tribe of the Confederacies came with certain obligations that must be fulfilled. Specifically, there are going to be two primary obligations. The first was a payment of tribute. These payments would depend on several factors, but generally serve to aid Paladin directly. This meant that the goods obtained would be used to support Paladin directly, support his wives, throw the occasional feast and party, and to conduct trade with outside tribes. The second obligation of the members' tribes was that they had to supply men to take place in war whenever that became necessary. Speaking on the topic of war, this is an important aspect of life in the tribes. As has been seen multiple times throughout history, the best way to get people to join together and stop fighting with each other is to find an external enemy for them to fight. If the tribes had, say, focused on fighting an external threat, they're going to have less time and energy to waste on infighting with each other. This helps overcome the animosity between the members of the Confederacy who had themselves had long-lasting rivalries that predated the Confederacy. Powden and his people were aware to agree of the growing European expansion. Powden was a young chief who was beginning to build his empire when settlers came to Roanoke. One of the only indications we have of what happened to the Roanoke settlers comes from Powden himself. According to a report from John Smith, Powden had told him that he had personally been responsible for killing the settlers in the Roanoke colony. Powden appears to have also been aware of other groups of settlers, specifically the Spanish, who had been through the area. These encounters were often violent. Much of the information that Powden has to rely upon came from a member of a nearby tribe, who may have been a cousin to Powden. After boarding one of the European boats as a young man, he had found himself kidnapped and held for the next 10 years. Upon returning, he had taken the name Don Luis. Luis gave clear instructions regarding his feelings towards the situation. He told Powden that these people were dangerous and, more importantly, numerous. His advice was simple. Kill them all, or they will just keep coming. We have actually met Don Luis before. Back in an episode 1.6, when we were discussing the status of the Americas prior to the Jamestown colony, Don Luis made an appearance. If you recall, I had mentioned that there had been a group of Jesuits that had attempted to set up a mission along the Chesapeake. Things went south, however, when their guide led a surprise attack against them and slaughtered all of the adults. That guide was Don Luis. Throughout the remainder of his life, Don Luis would remain staunchly opposed to the European settlers. There is also the possibility that we are going to see Don Luis again before our story is finished. Following the death of Powhatan in 1618, the paramount chief of the Powhatan Confederacy becomes Opa Shankano, the younger brother of Powhatan. There is a theory that Opa Shankano and Don Luis are in fact the same person. Admittedly, it does make for an interesting story and there are some coincidences that suggest that there is at least a possibility of this. For example, Opashenkino in Algonquian translates roughly to, he's whose soul is white. Both Opashenkino and Don Luis proved to be decidedly against European colonization, and both men are going to have violent encounters with the colonists. 
There is already a good deal of evidence to suggest that Don Luis was directly related to Powhatan and Open Shaken They appear to have been as closely related as potentially first cousins. And finally, both men were going to be right about the same age. However, beyond this, all the evidence is conjecture at best. While it is an interesting story that is at least worth mentioning, I would suggest that caution be taken when reading too much into it. The evidence for this being true exists, yet remains relatively thin. Maybe someday more evidence and research on this possibility will emerge. However, for now, I suggest that it be considered an interesting possibility and not much more. The English certainly were also aware of the Indian tribes and had their own beliefs and thoughts about what to expect. We are only about 20 years past the Roanoke colony, and stories of hostile encounters with local tribes was something that the settlers were going to be aware of. However, the English are going to be in a position that, well, aware of the dangers, they also know that they are going to be dependent on those native populations for their survival, at least throughout the early years. The Indian tribes present a secondary problem for those trying to recruit settlers. For the promoters, it's going to be important to paint a picture of a people who are number one, friendly, and number two, anxious to help. After all, nobody wants to be told that they are going to board a ship to go live amongst an enemy. For the promoters, they're going to have to tell an enticing tale that is going to actually make people want to cross the Atlantic. The awareness of the English towards the Native American populations varies. While events such as Roanoke are something that many would have had some awareness of, there are likewise several stories floating around by the time the first settlers landed in Jamestown. John Smith, for instance, seems to have had an interest in reading literature regarding Spanish exploits in the Americas. Of particular interest to Smith and others were stories of the Indian women. Smith enjoyed tales of how the Indian women had sexual appetites that were virtually insatiable, especially when it came to Christian men having relationships with those women. Specifically in regards to Virginia, Smith and others relied on Richard Hatluck's book, Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics, and Discovery of the English Nation. Hatluck writes of the Indian women welcoming Englishmen with open arms, even if it came at the expense of the Indian men. These tales provide a semi-factual basis for the propaganda being put out there by the promoters of the Virginia Company. Nobody is going to want to hop on the boat and head to Virginia if they're hearing tales of starvation and death. Instead, the promoters were in a position where they were going to have to sell Virginia as a paradise. These writings painted a specific picture that was important to the promoters in trying to sell that paradise to the future colonists. Of course, beyond stories of the open nature of the Indian women and the friendly locals, there's much more pragmatic considerations that have to be taken into account. For those who actually make the trip across the Atlantic to the New World, simply waiting for the Indian women to greet them with open arms proved to be a woefully insufficient amount of forethought, especially as there had already been an established history of violence and hostility from the Virginia tribes. In light of the possibilities of hostile native tribes, the question therefore becomes, how are the English going to deal with it? The English understand that a wholesale conquering and removal of the Indians was not going to be possible, nor was it something that they really did actually want to undertake. The settlers know that a reliance upon the Indians was going to be a key component for their survival. They were not going to produce enough to survive, especially during those early years while the colony was being established. 
Therefore, trade between the English and the local tribes was not only going to be something that the English would want to establish, it was something that they were going to have to establish if they hoped to survive. The English also do seem to want to avoid enslaving the Indians, as was much more common amongst the Spanish. The English instead were much more interested in assimilation. Of course, this is not the English settlers assimilating to Indian culture, but rather giving the Indians a chance to become more English. This includes things such as becoming Christian, paying taxes back to England, and, more importantly, working for the English directly. The view of the English was that instead of enslavement, they would make the Indians better than what they had been before they arrived. And in the eyes of the English, that's exactly what they're doing. They're helping make the Indians better. This is the basis that they're going to justify colonization. A popular view became that the Indians were the equivalent of Britons prior to the Romans' arrival. In this regard, much in the same way as the Britons had become civilized by the Romans, the English now were the party spreading civilization to the Indians. John Smith himself would write that despite these lofty hopes and ideals, that he believed that getting the Indians to do the work that the colonists required was going to require the English to force them to do that work. Smith viewed Hernando Cortez as the role model on how to deal with a native population and saw himself personally as another in a long line of conquistadors. The English therefore find themselves standing at a crossroads as they prepare to cross the Atlantic. The popular myths and stories of women waiting, standing around with open arms, yearning for the arrival of the English was one part of that. Stories about Indian men who were peaceful and anxious to help the new settlers was another big part of that story. This is what the promoters are needing to sell to get the men to go on the trip, and these stories are going to become a popular idea in England during the early years of colonization. The job of the promoters at a base level was to sell adventure, make promises of great riches, while downplaying the actual dangers that are going to exist for the settlers. Dangers that they're going to know all too soon. The promoters are in fact so married to this story that even as late as 1610, they are still sticking to a story of docile Indian populations. William Strachey, returning home from a year in Jamestown, writes that Powden was anxious for trade and of the tribute being extracted from the crown. He writes that in their current state, the Indians are living in a miserable slavery and that it is the English that will free them from this, bring them justice, and protect them from their enemies. The reality of the situation, however, is that, as we are going to discuss in a moment, the Indians gave a far less friendly greeting. For the English, while the stories would have been the reality that they had hoped to find, evidence suggests that, at a bare minimum, they probably had an idea that it was not actually the reality that they were going to find. By the time that 1607 had rolled around, information about Indian hostilities in Virginia already existed. Whether it is Roanoke or that Jesuit mission, the evidence was out there that these hostile tribes did exist. The English had, by and large, wanted to avoid some of the more brutal tactics of the Spanish. The English viewed their mission as just, as saving the Indians and bringing them civilization, not enslaving them or slaughtering them as many have believed that the Spanish had done. As time goes forward, however, the English hope to save the natives from the natives is going to be forced into the harsh reality of the situation. Powhatan never views the English as something that he wanted in his sphere. 
Well, he recognized the possible advantages of having the settlers. The chief policy of Powhatan was one of containment. Keep the English contained to the smallest possible area and stop them from spreading further. If Powhatan viewed the English as an isolated village, an outpost, the English viewed it as a launching board for something potentially much larger. During the first two decades following their arrival, the Indians and the English are going to clash repeatedly and violently. Both sides will see large number of casualties that will, of course, affect their future relations. To wrap this week up, I want to spend the rest of the episode looking specifically at the early encounters between the Powhatan people and the English. And while we are going to address several conflicts between the Powhatan and the English as we continue forward over the next few episodes, these first encounters are critical. It shows what happens when these two groups with such vastly different goals and histories come directly into conflict with one another. Few encounters between Indians and early colonists are as well known as that between Powhatan and John Smith. Of course, one of the reasons that this is so well remembered today is because of the Disney movie in the mid-1990s. However, while that was purely fictional, there is absolutely an encounter between John Smith and Powhatan than the movie was very, very, very loosely based on. Prior to that event, however, there are some early ominous signs that the relationship between the Indians and the English was going to be less welcoming than the English had hoped for. On the first day in Virginia, at least two colonists were wounded in attacks by native tribes. Evidence would suggest that these tribes were not members of the Powhatan Confederacy. Following the attack on June 14, 1607, Two unarmed Indians came and spoke with the colonists and clued them in to which groups were hostile. The two Indians that approached were members of the Powhatan Confederacy. Now, it is of course possible that Powhatan may have actually also been behind the attacks. If Powhatan could make it appear that all local tribes, other than his tribes of course, were hostile, this is something that he may have thought he could use to his advantage. Throughout the spring and summer, the colonists were decimated by sickness and disease. Sick colonists mean that many of the necessary tasks were not completed, the crops were going to prove insufficient to support the colonists, and this was all going to lead into a wide world of starvation. This leaves the settlers with little choice than to attempt to get their food from Powhatan. Smith and two men went off and attempted to secure the necessary food. Smith in this role chose to follow the Chickamauga River. Smith successfully made the trip three times and, through good luck, managed to keep out of Powhatan's territory. During these trips, Smith had managed to trade for corn that the colonists desperately needed. The Indians who they were trading with were not members of the Powhatan Confederacy. These Indians typically sought the iron tools that the English had. The successful trade must have been an encouraging sign for those early settlers. They desperately needed the food that the Indians had, and they were trading for it at what would have been considered a relatively low price. Tools and beads were always going to be a much more tolerable price to pay than, say, the English having to provide things like weapons and armor. The problem, of course, is that Smith is relying primarily on luck and does not seem to have much of an idea or understanding of the geopolitical dynasties of the area he's exploring. Powden, aware that the English were trading with tribes outside of his control, and that must be something that brought serious concerns for him, wanted to go ahead and get control of the situation. The last thing he would really want is for the English to form an alliance with one of his enemies. This is something that could have posed a serious threat to everything that he had built. Powhatan tasked his brother, Opashinkadam, with tracking down and intercepting Smith and his crew. Smith, again not knowing that geopolitical layout, ended up in territory that was controlled by the Powhatan. 
Opashekano was in the correct position and attacked. During the attack, those accompanying Smith were promptly killed. Recognizing John Smith as their leader, however, his life was spared, at least temporarily. The story from this point is one of the most famous interactions between the Indians and the early colonists. Upon being taken to Powhatan, the chief quickly decided that Smith must die. Powhatan had a large stone pulled forward and ordered that Smith be drugged over to it. His head was placed on the stone. Powhatan took a large club, raised it high above his head with the intention to beat Smith's brains out. Pocahontas, watching from the crowd, was horrified at what was about to happen. As Powhatan began to get ready to swing the large club to kill Smith, the young Pocahontas raced forward and threw her body over John Smith's. Powhatan was so taken back by his daughter's love for John Smith that he decided to let Smith live. It's a famous story and one that Disney made into a movie. In that version, Pocahontas was portrayed as an older teenager, even possibly a young adult, who was deeply in love with Smith despite their obvious cultural divides. That version also contained a troublemaking, though good-natured raccoon and a smug dog. What does the Disney version have in common with the story above? Both versions of the story I just told you are complete works of fiction. While it has become this highly romanticized tale, the evidence is against it taking place at all. The first and most glaring problem is that Pocahontas was only about 10 years old when these events occurred. Also troubling is the fact that John Smith didn't actually bother to mention any of this until he wrote about it in the General Histories of Virginia. For an event that seemed to be rather significant, it seems strange that Smith wouldn't even bother to mention it to anybody for 17 years after the event supposedly took place. None of his reports back to England, nor none of his other writings, ever included even the slightest mention of this until he wrote it in 1624. So why lie about it? Well, by the time that 1624 comes around, relations between the Powhatan people and the English were absolutely terrible. As we are going to see in a subsequent episode, prolonged periods of warfare between the settlers and the Powhatan are going to become a hallmark for the next two decades. This includes a slaughter of the English by Opashinkano and his people in 1622 that the English would not soon forget. Pocahontas, however, is viewed differently. Pocahontas ends up marrying John Rolfe and is going to travel to England where she's going to become something of a celebrity. By 1624, when feelings towards the Virginia Indians were decidedly negative, Pocahontas still is somebody who is viewed favorably. Beyond that, in 1624, anybody in a position to refute the claims by Smith was dead. Powden had died in 1618, and Pocahontas had died in 1617. With her still remaining popularity, however, in 1624, Smith most likely viewed her inclusion in the book as a way to just simply move more copies of it. If the famous story is something that was told in order to move books, the question shifts to what actually happened. While the story told in 1624 by Smith was a work of fiction, there was an actual encounter that did take place between John Smith and Powhatan after Smith was captured by Opashankano. It is likewise clear that something significant did take place during that encounter that would mark the relationship between Powhatan and John Smith as being something special. So let's look at the evidence. What do we know? Well, first off, we know that John Smith survives. He wrote a book in 1624, so obviously he does not die in 1607. 
Had Paladin wanted John Smith dead, it is a pretty fair bet that John Smith would have been killed with little fanfare. More likely, the events of the day were not an execution where Paladin had had an unexpected change of heart, but rather some kind of a ritual adoption ceremony. We discussed earlier in this episode the importance of those close family ties for Paladin. He depended on his family to help run the tribes. That made up his confederacy. Paladin understood that he was not going to have success in placing one of his biological relatives in charge of the English, however. That would have never been something that was going to be accepted. However, by adopting John Smith, Paladin would have been able to, in his mind at least, turn the English into what amounts essentially to a vassal state under his control. Paladin wanted the metal tools that the English could make and agreed to offer them protection and food in exchange for these tools. The problem here is that the English had no interest in becoming the vassals of anybody. The opposite was actually true. The English had every intention to turn Paladin into their vassals. Of course, in this moment, John Smith was in no position to argue his true intentions. It would also make sense that this relationship was not something that Smith would have been itching to write back home about. There was a fear during this time that the settlers would defect to the Indians as times became rough. To hear that John Smith had been adopted by Powhatan could have offered a sense of legitimacy to that option which the promoters would have wanted to avoid. There is a secondary possibility as well in this situation. There is at least some debate that Smith remained ignorant of the agreement that he had reached with Powhatan. Undoubtedly, a language barrier existed between the two men, and it is possible that neither side really fully understood the agreement that they had reached. Either way, John Smith is released very much alive. Regardless of how this situation is going to play out in reality, we know that Smith being released is one part of it and Powhatan gained some metal tools in the other part. The final part, though, is that from this point forward, at least for the next couple of years, the English are going to be in a position of dependence towards Powhatan for the food that he offered them. Powhatan would continue to send those gifts of corn that the English needed to survive. This dependence is probably something that Powhatan himself would have coveted. Well, the English needed food to survive. The arrangement makes a ton of sense for Powhatan when you think about it. Though he would have preferred the English to pack up and leave, as long as they were in Virginia, he wanted to make sure that he had control over them. Powhatan by this time knew that the English were absolutely terrible at feeding themselves and understood that this was something that he could exploit. As long as the English were dependent on him for their food, Powhatan maintained an advantage. Powhatan must have also felt that this dependence would have meant a degree of safety for him and his people. After all, the English surely won't attack the tribes that were actively providing them with food. Finally, consider this for Powhatan. As he is the one providing them food, he probably would have also have had the realization that if he ever needs to get rid of the English, just cut off the food supply. That is something we're going to see him do in 1609, and we're going to see the devastating effects that that's going to have on the English. Powhatan's failure in this situation was in not recognizing that the settlers at Jamestown were just the start of something much bigger. Jamestown was not going to be a single outpost that Powhatan could ever hope to contain. Rather, it's going to serve as the home base for a much more massive wave of oncoming Europeans. Powhatan was always at a disadvantage when looking at the long game. While he may have outnumbered the English of Virginia by a huge margin, 
the English contained a never-ending conveyor belt of people who would continue to flood into Virginia for decades to come. It is difficult to blame Powhatan and his people for believing that the English were something that could be contained in Jamestown. The Indians were constantly amazed that the English were so terrible at conforming to their environment. Powhatan would have observed that in the years to come, the English were dying at a rate that was never going to be sustainable for them. Again, the problem was that the English were very good at quickly replacing the dead with new settlers, though. This is something that we are going to see time and time again as we discuss Jamestown. Beyond that, they had the example of Roanoke and the Jesuit mission to rely on. In both these cases, these remained small outposts until they simply died or were killed off. The thinking may have followed that Jamestown was going to replay that situation all over again. Colonists are going to hang out for a few years, and then they're all going to just die off and go away. And based on the death rates that Powhatan's seen, that really doesn't seem like a far-fetched scenario either. While a tense peace briefly existed following John Smith's release, the following decades are going to be marked with conflict between the groups. As we're going to see, both sides are going to commit slaughters of the other. In the end, however, despite the efforts of the Powhatan people, the English were simply better able to resupply their numbers. The Powhatan people could never get in front of that conveyor belt and stop the flow of people. This is how 60 years after the founding of Jamestown, the English are going to be thriving and growing, while the remnants of the Powhatan Confederacy will find themselves struggling to survive. That is all in the future, however. While we know that English domination is something that is coming, it is hardly clear in those early years that the English were going to survive in North America at all. Disease, warfare, and starvation decimated the English populations. Next time, we are going to look at the early years in Jamestown for the English. We are going to spend some time looking at their struggles and examine how they very nearly met the same fate as those settlers back in Roanoke. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, and as always, I really want to thank you guys all for tuning in and listening. Thank you.